Hello! And welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires of Slate and Times and that kind of place. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. We are going to talk about GDP. We are going to talk about the astonishing economic growth rate that the U.S. is going through right now. We are going to talk about oil mergers. We've just had $125 billion of mergers announced in the past couple of weeks. So what on earth is going on with that? We are going to talk about dimes and coins and whether they should be abolished, which obviously they should. No. Emily has some weird atavistic, <laughs> no. n- nostalgic reason for thinking that <laughs> pennies are important. Um, we have a Slate Plus segment on the habits of CEOs. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So this is not the numbers round, but the number of the week is definitely... 4.9, which is the pace of real GDP growth in the third quarter. America is zooming ahead economically. It is growing so fast that it is made up, it is back to its trajectory of where it was pre pandemic, that whole massive pandemic recession. You know, we've been growing above trend for so long since that recession that we're now back to the trend. It is a really impressive achievement given that most of the rest of the Western world has signally failed to accomplish this. Um, And especially given that this time last year, I was reading Bloomberg headlines saying things like, there is a 100% chance of recession in the next 12 months. Um, Obviously, that didn't happen. So... Emily, to what do you attribute this uncommon strength in the economy? And why do you think so many economists and prognosticators got it so wrong? Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, I was reading a New York Times article from last year recently, and there was just a sentence in the article was like, next year with the coming recession, like it just said it as if it was fact, this recession is coming. So it's just, just pause on how remarkable it is that how wrong everyone was. I think a big reason, um, a big explanation here is the job market. It has been really strong for a really long time ever since we emerged, you know, from 2020. Unemployment is very low. There are a lot of jobs. Um, Some industries are still grappling with labor shortages. Americans are making money and they're spending the money. (laughs) So I think um, that's a big reason GDP is so strong. I mean, our economy is what, like 70% consumer spending, So there are a lot of consumers, they all have, not all of them, but a lot of them have jobs and they're spending their money and the economy is doing well. Our colleague, Matt Phillips, has a great take on the savings rate, which is basically, we we saw this big uptick in savings during the pandemic because we had, you know, nowhere to go and nothing to spend money on. And then a lot of the growth that we saw post-pandemic was attributed to well, people are just spending down their savings. And once that savings is gone, then they won't be Mm -hmm. able to do that anymore. And then we'll be in trouble. But the fact is, saving money is a sign of bearishness, right? Saving money is what you do when you're, you know, preparing for a cold winter ahead. And spending down your savings 
is a sign of bullishness. It's a sign of like, I am comfortable in my job. I know I'm going to be earning lots of money um, in the future. I don't need to save up money for the future because I'll have future earnings. And that's what we're seeing right now. We're seeing people comfortable spending, comfortable spending down their savings. And that's all contributing to this incredibly strong economy, which, you know, it might not be 4.9%, you know, quarter in and quarter out, but like, is still incredibly impressive. Yeah, we should say it might not be 4.9% three months from now when it gets adjusted because the, it's just one number and it will it, it could get adjusted and be a little bit different in, in the future. Another reason people have a lot of money, they might have spent down their savings, but as we t- I think we talked about last week, in the plus section, people have are more wealthy now. <laughs> people are richer than they were um, a few years ago. And you know, I was reading reports that people take, instead of two vacations a year, people are taking like four vacations a year, three vacations a year. Um, they've got money to burn. I think we reported in Axios Markets. Boat sales are up. People are buying boats. No one is buying a boat if they're feeling unsure of their um, own personal finances, I don't think. How do we reconcile this with the fact that in surveys, people think the economy is not doing great? There's a tweet this morning from a VC named Jason Calacanis, who's probably familiar to some listeners, where he said something like he was talking about this uh, TikTok video where a young woman was complaining about her job. And he said, well, this is what happens when we're in a recession. And a bunch of people (laughs) responded to him and said, we're not in a recession. And he said, well, I'm calling it a rolling recession, which is clearly something he made up. But He's not the only person. Well, no, a rolling recession is not something. I, th- I he... think the way he defined it, it was very much a Jason, you know, invention. But <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, like, let, we, we we do not want this to become a like a Jason Calacanis is wrong podcast. But the idea of a rolling recession is an interesting and real one, right? Which is that there are different sectors to the economy. Um, anyone who works in the media business knows that. 2023 and 2022 were like pretty bad years for um, the advertising industry. And a bunch of people wound up like losing their jobs as a result. Um, Advertisers did do seem to have pulled back on certain types of spending. Um, And that does seem to have been a recession in that little part of the economy. Um, Obviously, if you are in the home renovation business and you and your mate and your customers are people who are buying houses, then you are in a recession right now because no one's buying houses because of reasons we t- we've talked about on the show ad nauseum. And the idea behind a rolling recession is that there are little bits of the economy which at any given point in time are in recession. You know, we remember last year there was that wave of massive layoffs in big tech companies from, you know, Meta and Google and, you know, places like that. Um, and it felt like big tech had its own little mini sort of Northern California recession thing going on. And probably in 2024, there's going to be some other part of the economy that is in recession. But the idea is that the economy as a whole is fine because everything that isn't part of that you know, small segment that is in recession is doing fine. And you just sort of everyone's every little sector takes its own turn to have its own recession, which seems broadly speaking, like a healthy way of of having recessions if you're going to like if 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 all of these different sectors are going to have a recession at some point, 
it's much better that they have them sequentially than that they have them simultaneously. Yeah, I think that's helps also explain Elizabeth's initial question, which is, if the economy is okay, why do so many surveys and so many people, not just Jason, think that it's not okay? I've been writing about this for the past, I don't know, it feels like a year, because um, it's a big thing. You know, there's these surveys, consumers say the economy is not great. We don't feel confident about it. The economy is bad. And then there are all these economists and other people who are like, but the economy is great. It is doing well. I think one reason, one big reason, and there's a little bit of research on this that I've written about, and and you can just understand it intuitively, it's the inflation. It's that it's hard to reconcile the idea that the economy is doing well when you go to the store and you go to buy, this is an example from a Wall Street Journal opinion piece, I'm sorry, but you go to the store and a box of cereal is $8. Even if you can afford the $8 box of cereal, you're just like, Jesus, $8 for <laughs> Frosted Flakes or whatever it is, It's un- it, it hurts. Also, if you look at the data on pay, most people aren't doing that much better than before. It's, it's, it really depends how you slice it, and there's all kinds of ways to look at people's pay, but it's barely keeping pace with inflation. Maybe only recently has it been outpacing inflation. So, you know, people feel it, it's not a good feeling in your own personal economy when all your bills are going up a lot, even if you can still afford them. It's still kind of like playing with your psychology in a way that would make you more pessimistic. I want to push back a little bit on this, of this idea of your bills are going up a lot. I think that there are two different conceptions of inflation. And I think you're right that it is about inflation, but I think that we need to be very clear about what we're talking about when we talk about people being worried about inflation or people being, you know, having bad vibes because of inflation. Um, When you talk about inflation, when I talk about inflation, when economists talk about inflation, we are talking about exactly what you're saying, which is rising prices. Um, Right now, prices are not rising. You know, inflation is below 3%. It, you know, maybe it's not the 2% target that the Fed wants, but it's perfectly at a non-worrying level and it's not high enough that people really notice it from day to day in terms of like oh my god the price of this just went up or the price Mm -hmm. of that just went up um the inflation that is causing the bad vibes if there is still a little bit of a lingering vibe session is a function of high prices not of rising prices yes that's that's a very good point Mm -hmm. and so a lot of economists look at you know, people complaining about inflation, and they say, these people are stupid because there isn't any inflation. Inflation has gone away. Inflation was a last year thing. It's not a this year thing. And that's because they're looking at inflation as like a year-on-year thing or, you know, how much price is rising right now thing. But I think normal humans don't think of inflation that way. They think of inflation as a box of cereal shouldn't cost $8. And that's, you know, and if a box of cereal cost $8 six months ago, and it still costs $8 now, you still think, ugh, inflation, that's really bad, even though it hasn't gone up at all in the last six months. I think psychologically, people expected deflation. They were like, okay, prices are going up, and soon they'll come down. But that is, you know, in most cases, accepting eggs, (laughs) not not how it works. You know, the prices go up, and they stay up. (laughs) And not not desirable. Like, Economically speaking, yeah. no one wants to live in an economy with deflation. Deflation is terrible. Right. Um, but but yeah, you're right. They do like to live in an economy with four dollar cereal, uh, yeah. cheap stuff. 
And they loved this idea, yeah, that, that maybe prices might revert back to where they were pre-inflation. And it's going to take some time before they get comfortable with, well, actually, prices are where they are now, and they're not going to come down. We all lived in this world with very low inflation for a long time. And the one area where there were like price fluctuations was with gas. And what gas prices fluctuating teach you is that prices do go up and back down. Correct. <laughs> so like the fact that prices go up and stay up is kind of like a novel thing, I think, for a lot of people. I think consumers overfocus on particularly volatile indicators like gas prices, mm-hmm. but also they're more likely to have a, a sort of emotional reaction to the price going up and then sort of uh, mentally block it out and the price goes back down. Mm. So even in situations where there is some, uh, you know, what's what would feel like deflation to the consumer, they don't give it equal weight as, you know, the the sort of pain they experience when the prices go up. Yeah. And then the one thing we have to mention, and I hate mentioning this because, you know, I hate all things political, but we live in a highly polarized and very politically aware and politically febrile country, as is evidenced by whatever crazy is going on in the House of Representatives right now. And when you ask people in opinion polls, how do you feel about the economy? What they do not do is think about, like, how much money do I have in my savings account? How much money am I spending? And, like, how safe do I think my job is? No, like, that question is on some deep level a political question. And they and most people, if there is a president who is not of their party, will respond in a way they will say, like, it's bad, you know, because yeah. they don't like the president. So that's... When there's a Republican president, the Democrats will be like down on the economy. When there's a Democratic president, the Republicans will be down on the economy just because that's how they feel the answer is because the president runs things. Um, and then right now, you also have a bunch of Democrats who are not particularly happy with Biden. And they're like, eh, you know, the answer to that question is often much closer to being a sort of presidential approval rating question than it is an actual how do you feel about the economy question. I recently wrote about like the Gallup polling that shows that the the partisan nature of feelings about the economy. There is there are exceptions. For example, during 08 when the economy was no question <laughs> in crisis and there was a recession, there was bipartisan agreement that the economy was bad. So and, and there was another uh, time, too. When the economy is genuinely bad, like no question, like the thing is on fire, people shed those partisan um, slants, which I thought was interesting. Definitely when the economy is clearly bad, everyone's like, the economy is clearly bad. Well, it's I guess what I'm bad. saying is it's very rare to find a time when the economy is good and the broad population can agree on a bipartisan basis that the economy is good. Yeah, some of it too is is about uh, the way that people think about the parties as brands, and the overall sentiment is that Democrats are worse than the economy because of our social policies. But by all the measures that most voters say that they care about, Democrats are actually better. You know, we have lower deficits and so on, uh, and we just can't shake the intuitive sense that people have that if a Democrat is in the Oval Office, the economy is going to be worse. I mean, we could go down a rabbit hole debating like how much the president really can do about a 
trillion dollar economy. I mean, it's a lot of. Oh yeah, no, it's it's not rational. It's just. But but to the point of like we are in a strong economy, right? It doesn't. On some level, I think we have proven time and time again that it doesn't matter whether people answer opinion poll questions by saying, I don't think the economy is doing well. Like, that doesn't really feed... Like, the way they answer that question in a poll does not reflect the way they go out in the world and behave. They will say the economy is shit, and then the next day they will turn around and buy a boat, right? So... It, it does affect so you should. Vote, so I, I, I do think they... I do think that we can broadly ignore... That, that that opinion poll question as a guide to economic sentiment. I think it's an interesting one in regards to political sentiment, but you know we're not a politics show, so we don't care about that. Kind of amazing, though, just to bring it back home. Four point nine percent GDP growth. There was there were years and years where no one thought that was going to ever happen in the U.S. again, right? And some of it is you know the bad kind of growth, which is inventories going up basically businesses made a bunch of made more stuff than they sold mm. um and that making stuff is economic activity so it contributes to gdp but now you just have warehouses filling up with stuff that needs to get sold at some point um but even if you strip out that inventory bit like it's we still had very healthy growth in the third quarter what one of the again like oh god i hate myself for doing this but um <laughs> What one of the things that one of the tropes that seems to be bubbling along underneath all of the talk of GDP growth is this idea of well we're going to have to have a recession eventually, and all we're doing is we're we're pushing off the inevitable recession, and you know <laughs> and, and then a bunch of people <laughs> you know on the left in particular are like yikes what happens if the inevitable recession happens like right before the presidential election that would be bad. Um, but yeah, I think in general, yeah, growth is good, higher growth is better, and there's no mean reversion going on here, right? It's not like if we have high growth in Q3 2023, then that is going to reduce growth in 2024. Like growth feeds on itself, and the more you have, the more you have. We're going to have more oil soon, right, Felix? Oh, oh. <laughs> Emily Peck, was that a segue? Hey. <laughs> hey Okay, so after the break, oil. We have two $60 billion oil mergers happening over the past week or two, and that is a big deal. Exxon came out and said it was buying Pioneer, which is mostly a shale gas company. And then... Chevron came out and said it was buying Hess, which is mostly a Guyanese, you know, offshore oil company. Um, both of these were worth more than $60 billion, if you include that. That is a lot of money. The biggest merger of all time at the time in uh, 1998 was when Exxon merged with Mobil, and that was like $75 billion, just to put things in perspective. So these are huge mergers. And one of the super interesting things about these mergers is that they are bullish mergers. Um, you do see consolidation in shrinking industries. This happens all the time. People are like, we need to merge because our industry is shrinking and we need economies of scale and you know, all of this kind of stuff. This is not that. 
Um, if you look at, for instance, the Exxon um, Pioneer deal, the total amount of oil and gas that they expect to produce is significantly higher, like 700,000 barrels a day higher than a sort of some of the parts where they would be on their expected trajectory if they didn't merge. So this is, we are going to merge, we're going to get bigger, we are going to be bigger than some of our parts. It's one of those, it, both of them are that kind of merger, which is quite astonishing in a world where, you know, everyone at least pays lip service to the idea that we want net zero emissions and we're all decarbonizing and so on and so forth. I was doing some calls on these uh, mergers this week because I thought to myself, these are big, juicy deals for oil companies. And how much of this comes out of the Ukraine war? You know, after Russia invaded Ukraine, we all know what happened. Oil prices shot up. The oil companies had amazing 2022s, just like spewing profits. It was in incredible. And all of a sudden, policymakers, governments all over the world were worried about oil, getting enough oil, you know, keeping the price you know, under control. And someone said to me, uh, Ukraine, Russia was kind of a stress test for policymakers who were, you know, committing to climate change goals or climate policies and, and talking about reducing our dependence on oil. As soon as this war happened and oil supplies were threatened and oil prices went up, this is the stress test. And policymakers failed it. They basically were like, no, 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 we need the oil. We must have more oil. Um, and the, the fortunes of the companies changed. I, ha I have a chart in my newsletter this week showing the enterprise value of Chevron and that of NextEra Energy, which is the big you know, renewable energy company in the United States. Three years ago, NextEra Energy was worth $35 billion more than Chevron. Mm-hmm. Now there's like a hundred and something billion dollar gap and Chevron is worth way more than next era. So there was this trade which was very associated with Al Gore for um, a good 10, 15 years where he's basically running this fund and they're basically like the way we outperform is by being underweight energy stocks because you know, or carbon energy stocks because those stocks are imploding slowly, inevitably as the world decarbonizes. And that worked for them for a long time. But over the past two years, um, really three years at this point, it, it just hasn't worked at all. I guess the question is longer term. I mean, no one's saying that uh, the transition to clean energy isn't happening. And I mean, the Biden administration has put a lot of money into it, while at the same time encouraging oil companies to know, you know, pump more oil and um, opening up the stockpile of oil too. Um, so it's kind of in a weird place, but there's so much money going into the transition that it does seem like it's still inevitably these these companies will right decline in some way. I don't I don't know if that's inevitable. I really don't. Um, you know, I I do think it's inevitable that demand for fossil fuels will decline in the United States and Western Europe, um, and probably even in China as well. But if you look at the rest of the world, like I, I really think that there's a relatively strong case to be made that whatever declines you see in in the U.S. and Europe and China, you're just gonna they're going to be offset by increases everywhere else. OPEC thinks we're not going to reach peak oil demand until 2045. Also, the oil company executives don't seem to believe that they, 
you know, their their logic for these big consolidations or what they say is that the consolidations allow them to be more resilient. They can experiment more. And then they insinuate they're going to invest more into uh, alternative energy programs, but you don't actually see it happening. So, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that the oil companies, I mean, some of them have dialed back their rhetoric and plans around, you know, climate goals and energy transition. And as the market boomed post-Ukraine war, um, they seem to be sort of like, they're putting all the chips in the oil bucket because, duh, that's where all the money is. And the rhetoric on climate from the oil industry seems to have abated a bit. The the one thing I will say is that just like the ExxonMobil deal, both of these deals, um, Exxon Pioneer and Chevron Hess are old stock deals. You know, it's just it's just playing around with fake money, which is you know mm. shares. Um, you know, shares of Pioneer are becoming shares of Exxon. Shares of Hess are becoming shares of Chevron. Um, no one's actually spending money on these on acquiring these companies. No, no one is out there. You know, making cash investments into these companies. They are making, they are increasing cash investments in things like, you know, Guyanese oil fields and, and the Permian Basin. But that's, you know, that's part of their bullishness. Um, but when you see the big numbers of like $60 billion, like it's, it's a little bit fake because it's all just paper money. Hmm. What is that? What do you think that indicates about these deals? I, I think that makes it a lot easier to do the deals because mm. if, you know, if Exxon had to come up with $65 billion in order to pay for Pioneer, like it would it would need to borrow that money at very high interest rates or it would need to spend cash that it has currently allocated for exploration and, and um, you know, investment in its fields and there would be a massive opportunity cost to to the acquisition and they would find it much more difficult to do the deal if they can just pay in stock they can use all of that cash for the you know for investing in growth and that makes the acquisition much more attractive especially with um interest rates where they are yeah i'm thinking about the oil companies a lot because as slate money listeners might want to know that we'll have an episode on the movie the insider which is about big tobacco well, the movie about big tobacco got me thinking about big oil. And I feel like it wasn't that long ago that there was reporting and writing about, you know, big oil is going to get like taken down the way big tobacco did. Remember? There was even, I think, a Washington Post story that had, you know, documents from inside the company showing that they know that fossil fuels, you know, uh, cause climate change or whatever. And everyone was like, it's the next, this is it. It's, they're going to get taken down. But I think we could say now that that is not true. Um, and I think it's because everyone depends on oil all the time in a way that no one depended on, you know, cigarettes or opioids or whatever. So it's something I've been thinking about. So think about that. The episode is, I think, coming out in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think the difference, too, in, in terms of whether that idea gets traction is really how the public perceives it as, you know, a personal safety issue versus uh, how people feel about climate, which to most people is, is kind of an mm. abstraction. Whereas, right. you know, getting cancer from cigarettes is is a little more, you, you see it happening in your life with other people sometimes. Right. Your your father has an oxygen tank, so you uh, get it. Yeah. I do yeah. think it, it matters where you live. If you spend a bunch of time in places like Germany and Switzerland, they don't think of 
carbon emissions and climate change as being an abstraction. They every time they're forced to get on a plane, they're like they feel really bad about that, and they're like if they run a conference, they're like we're going to have to make sure that the overwhelming majority of people at this conference can get there by train, and like there is this just. It's the the way of thinking about personal carbon emissions and personal carbon footprint is much more embedded into your day to day thought than it is with the overwhelming majority of Americans. Well, also we have we have a car culture overwhelmingly in a way that European countries generally don't. Yeah, yeah you're really dependent on on cars here, except for you guys, Felix. Except for me, exactly. <laughs> we 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 Manhattanites, we don't need cars, um, right. but it's true. There's a part of the world where people really care about this stuff on a day-to-day basis and there's a part of the world where they don't. I think, I mean, we've said stuff like this before and it's still broadly true, but I think given a lot of the more extreme weather events we've been seeing the past few years, I think more people are coming around to like actually caring about this stuff. Like, you know, when the sky was red in New York. I think most people think global warming is real. We, in that big sort of vague hand wavy we need to do something about it um and if a politician says something about reducing carbon emissions and saving the planet they'll nod along and clap and say yes um i i guess my point is not about that um and and certainly you're right when extreme weather events happen people are like yeah this is clearly part of of global climate change the bigger question is is more about how salient it is on a day-to-day basis and how people just think about it as part of their quotidian lives and they don't have much choice and that's why the oil companies are doing great we're going to have an ad break and then we're going to talk about something really stupid can we talk about something really stupid always coins what is that what is even the point of coins i am willing to concede that there might be some minimal utility to the quarter. But there was this fabulous story earlier this week about a bunch of thieves who stole 2 million dimes. And then they're like, what the <laughs> fuck are we supposed to do with 2 million dimes? And, and they, they wound took up... them to a coin star, which exactly. is... Exactly. Because the only way you can actually spend coins is by converting them into something that isn't coins. And we have built these you know, large, expensive machines to convert coins into something that you can actually spend because coins aren't really money. Oh, Felix, I I can't disagree with you more. Yeah. Charities about, would disagree with you this. because they, there's uh, some concern among charitable organizations that if you eliminate coins, the uh, sort of impulse dropping coins into the, you know, charity bucket at the cash register will stop. Yeah, that's fine because no charity makes a meaningful amount of money from coins dropped into a bucket. Like this idea of like every penny counts is bullshit. You can have so many pennies and none of it is going to count because like literally pennies don't add up to anything. They're worthless. Wait, I need to tell you guys that when I was 13, (laughs) my best friend and I collected all the pennies in both our homes. Okay. We took them in a sack. It was very heavy. We walked to the bank with a sack of pennies. Bless you. We were like, we'd like to make these into dollars. There were no Coinstar machines at the time. The bank was like, oh, you funny girls, you have to roll them. They put us in a little room. We rolled all our pennies. We came up with, I think it was like $27, okay? A lot of money, again, at the time. 
financed ourselves a trip on the Long Island Railroad (laughs) to New York City (laughs) on the penny funding. So to your point, pennies are useless. I say to you, sir, (laughs) (laughs) they financed my secret trip to New York City. And this was Emily's origin story. About how she got into financial reporting. She she got got to New York on the Long Island Railroad. She found herself a job in journalism, and the rest is history. That's exactly how it happened. Um, Also, in addition to the charities being upset about not getting coins, um, homeless people, people on the street, panhandlers, they like to get coins. It's easier for people to, you know, give them coins than it is probably to to give them a 5 or a 10 or a 20, things like that. That counts too, right? Well, you know who else is really adamant that, you know, we keep coins in circulation? It's an organization called Americans for Common Sense, C-E-N-T-S. <laughs> Please don't. And, and is that and funded by the out, copper lobby? Yes, it turns out they're a front for the zinc lobby. Oh, the zinc lobby. There you go. <laughs> they, okay, Common so, Sense. Yeah. In 1857, we abolished the half penny. Does anyone think that we should still have half pennies? No, the... Abolition of the half penny was a perfectly sensible thing to do. The half penny in 1857 was worth about 19 cents in today's money. So I have a bit of trivia <laughs> along these lines. Felix originally wanted to talk about very specifically eliminating dimes. And so I think Emily and I were Googling various dime-related subtopics <laughs> this morning. We and prepared. I was looking for the, the origin of the phrase turn on a dime. And it turns oh. out it was originally turn on a five cent piece in, in the late 80s. And it was a way of talking about uh, a well trained horse that could turn what? on a five cent piece. So apparently, turn on a five cent piece, the expression itself has experienced inflation. And now we all understand it as turn on a dime. Um, I, I'm just going to say, as the foreigner in, these, in this room, um, what's up with the dimes being so small and the nickels being big? That's never made sense to me. <laughs> I, I I have another story from my childhood about that. Okay. I used to get <laughs> I used to get a dime a week for allowance when I was like four or something, and then I noticed the nickel is bigger. So I said to my mother, "Give it up. I want the nickel instead of the dime a week." And she gave it to me. <laughs> There's also you know my my wow. eight year old when he was learning the value of coins in kindergarten or whatever would always mistake the dime and the penny for exactly that reason. It was like, but the dime is the smallest one. <laughs> it yeah. really doesn't make sense. It really doesn't, it doesn't make sense. But the the easy way to solve this problem is just to debo- abolish all nickels, dimes, and pennies and just have quarters. Life would be like, okay, so the first, here's a question I have for you, Emily, as, <laughs> as a mom with kids in the house. If your kids tried to recreate your 13-year-old escapades today and rummaged around down the back of sofas and in jars and all the rest of it trying to find pennies, like how many would they even find? I feel like we're not even using coins these days. I mean, that's that's fair. I, we might have or some family member has a giant jar of pennies somewhere that probably could fund one round-trip ticket to the city. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but it might, yeah, it might be tough. That's true. I concede that that caper might not occur in 2023. <laughs> it just, it, I just don't see, like, they're clunky, useless things. 
to the point at which when you do pay in cash and someone tries to give you, you know, change, the standard behavior is to just look around for the nearest tip jar because who wants to schlep that change around anywhere? I also, um, Patrick shared with us in our in our prep stuff, a Guardian piece on, you know, getting rid of change. And there was like a cashier in, in the lead who said he didn't like when people rummage around for change, you know, when they pay for stuff. And that really hurt because that's me. If something is like, <laughs> you know, 246, I'll be like, oh, oh, hang on. I have six cents. You know, I'm that person. And apparently cashiers hate that person. So I, I, I was a cashier and I liked those people because the people who always <laughs> needed change made me have to go and get like an extra roll of quarters or oh, whatever. Okay. Like it's, it slowed down. Stuff. Just, Good. just okay. tap your debit card, people. Seriously. But what about the unbanked? That's another thing. Like the Even unbanked- the unbanked have debit cards. <laughs> they do not always, but <laughs> I, 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 I I I just had a long conversation with the FDIC about this. And and actually, like if you if you try and define unbanked as people who have no sort of debit card or um you know app on their phone that holds money or anything like that at all the unbanked are de minimis at this point there are very 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 few of them left in america can i share some more fun facts about dimes also first i want to say that just the word dime is really good and there's just there's Turn on a dime. There's the five and dime. There's March of Dimes. It's a great word. It sounds really good when you say it and and when you read it. It just is a great word. So that said, the five and dime store, which I don't know if people have heard of, is now the dollar store. Well, no, the five. Well, okay. Here's three things. The five and dime store, Emily. Yes, yes, Felix. I'll get to that. The five and dime store used to literally only sell stuff that costs either a nickel or a dime, which I did not know. Then, of course, it evolves to the dollar store. But maybe Felix does not know this because, as we've said a million times, that he lives in Manhattan. There is a store now called Five Below, which is about five dollars and below. But also, it's not really true to that limit either. You can get stuff for more than five dollars there. So I thought that was kind of a fun little history of stores named after the inflation, how inflation changes the names of stores. And yeah, I will it, stop because there. everything I'm not tell you about be, the March of Dimes. Because everything is is dollars. Everything is denominated <laughs> in dollars. Like we can have a whole separate conversation about whether the dollar bill should become a dollar coin and whether it's really dumb to oh. have these like rapidly disintegrating pieces of paper in our wallet that are worth one dollar. Um you know, I'm I'm not necessarily a coin abolitionist, but the natural <laughs> denominations of coins in the United States, given what prices are, are twenty five cents and one dollar. They are not one cent, five cents, ten cents, and twenty five cents. So, Felix, what you're saying is, it's time for change. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting out my yellow card. I'm sorry. One more of those, Emily, and you're. Being you know, sent off. One last time. I'm not. I'm not engaging. I refuse. <laughs> I'm. I'm. I'm segueing to a numbers round because I can't with more of these funds. If I, had but I am. I am happy. <laughs> I am happy that Emily is going to be the official dad joke. You know, co-host. They are mom jokes. I am. Are really, they mom jokes? Yeah, I've been trying to rebrand the dad joke as mom joke for a long time. I'll tell you that it's not working it's at not all. Working. No. <laughs> Numbers round. Who, who's got a number? Um, Elizabeth, do you? 
Yes, I do. Uh, 1.1 billion. And that is Taylor Swift's estimated net worth now. She is in the billionaire class of people. And can we mention that this is a slightly more reliable net worth than the Forbes numbers that often come out about Kylie Jenner or some some such? Um, Number one, it comes from Bloomberg, which is more reliable than Forbes. Um, And number two... It is actually based on money that she has earned rather than some weird extrapolation of, you know, this person owns a company and if you look at the valuation of the company, then probably it's worth blah, blah, blah. Like, no, this yep. is, she, has, she has actually made like a billion dollars, which is good for her. Good for her. And it's from her music and music sales. Like it's not, she didn't start a cosmetics brand or anything like that. Not that there's anything wrong with doing that. It's just remarkable that it's just from music. The industry that's supposed to be dying. Or From her art and not her personal brand, per se. Yeah. My number is 40%, which is the proportion of U.S. exports that required government approval in the mid-1980s towards the end of the Cold War. Um this comes from a pair of essays that are in the latest issue of Foreign Affairs, um, one by Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and one by Henry Farrell, who's going to be coming on the podcast pretty soon. And basically what they talk about in their really interesting essays is this way that we had this incredibly restrictive Um, economic policy in terms of um, who we were allowed to trade with throughout most of the Cold War. And you had to apply for export licenses, and you basically only got your export licenses if you were exporting to, you know, friendly countries like France or the UK or something. And if you wanted to export to China or Russia, you wouldn't be allowed to. Um, Then, of course, the Berlin Wall came down, and there was this big peace dividend, and there was this, you know, we had the WTO, and there was this big laissez-faire thing, and all of those um, policies got reversed, and we had the big trade boom. But now with China, um, you know, we're like, we, we still have those tools. We still have the Defense Production Act and a whole bunch of things that are enabling uh, first President Trump and then President Biden to try and crack down on on trade with China in particular. And the theme of the essays is like, we shouldn't be using those tools in that way. We have to be much smarter about this because we are much more reliant and codependent on China than we were with the Soviet Union. Um, But I was just, you know, it's amazing how insular the American economy really was in the 1980s. I had no idea. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I hadn't thought like about export controls and restrictions on trade. I always thought it was like a way to like punish another country, but in a way it's like self-protective because then you if you have more free trade with the other country, then you're more dependent or your your dependence is intertwined, which people used to say was a good thing, but now is a bad thing. You exactly. know, it used to be like, well, we're intertwined with China, therefore we'll never go to war with them. Now it's like we're intertwined intertwined with China, we might go to war with them. And that's going to be like the worst thing that ever happens. So what's your number, Emily? My number is 70, $70. That is the amount that a person in a typical U.S. household spends on food or the amount a typical U.S. household spends on food per person each week. 
Um, so I'm curious, Slate Money listeners, is that what you spend? You spend more, less? I I, I did quietly slack Emily earlier today. The my year to date spending on restaurants, which I think Slate Money will probably <sighs> Slate Money listeners will probably not be surprised to hear is more than seventy dollars a week. It's pretty high. It's <laughs> a hair-raising number. A lot of dimes, let's just say. If I, if I had to pay my restaurant <laughs> bills with dimes, I would be walking around with very large and very heavy sacks of cash. And I fear to think what the restaurant would like, – I would never be – they would just 86 me on the spot. They'd be like, you, yes. if, if you even try and make a reservation, we'll be like, you know. Felix would have to become a car person. To haul around that many times. dimes. <laughs> you would have a big pickup truck with the dimes. I'd, I'd be making restaurant restaurant reservations and I'd be like phoning them up and saying, do you have parking? And they'd be like, what? <laughs> and what about a Coinstar machine? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's, a, it's a healthy reminder of like how, you know, not everyone spends a fortune on ludicrously expensive supermarkets and restaurants and that kind of thing. You don't need to, especially not if you don't live in Manhattan. Anyway, tell write to us and tell us how much you spend on food, or tell me because I yeah tell I'm Emily interested in this because this is this is the this is Emily's beat. It's my bread and butter. <laughs> <laughs> One the more, we're, we're, we're gonna make it a thing. <laughs> his head on his hand. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, I think that's it for us this week. Unless you are one of our lovely Slate Plus listeners, in which case we are talking about Emily morning routines. Morning routines. But. <laughs> 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 oh, we, Elizabeth, we are talking about morning routines and if they're a good idea. Thank you for listening. Thank you for telling us how much you spend on food each week. Thank you to Patrick Fort for producing. And we'll be back next week with more Slate Money. <laughs> <laughs>